you would, take out your Bibles, take out the Word of God, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We continue our series through 1 Peter. We hope to get to the end before the end of the year. And we've been talking about living hope that the gospel is this seed that God has planted in our hearts, the seed of the kingdom that has begun to grow in the world. And this seed of the gospel calls us to look forward to a day when the world will be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And that glory has begun in our hearts. And it causes us to live with hope, a a confident expectation that this will happen, that Jesus will rule the world as king. And we taste his lordship now in the gospel. And that causes us to be different in the world. Even when we suffer, we understand that God is doing something in us of infinite proportion. He is working in us a faith like gold that is more valuable than anything we could have in this world. As we suffer, He is making us like Jesus who suffered for the joy that was set before Him. The kingdom that was given to Him, He suffered in light of that. And we're able to follow in His example by faith. We have this living hope, a hope that changes the way that we live now. And today we're going to look at verses 7 through verse 11. Actually, we're going to look at verses 1 through verse 11. But we're going, to, we're going to zero in on verses 7 through 11 because this is very uh, specific application to the book. He's worked his way to this point. What does this new hope, this new age, this living hope look like in your life? And here he tells us beginning in verse 7. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh God, we pray that You would use Your Word by the power of Your Spirit to make us more like Christ. God, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, according to Your Word, the Gospel would become a great treasure to us. Uh, Surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus would become a, a delight in our lives. God, we would reflect and mirror and display His glory in the world as witnesses of His kingdom. As we tell others about Jesus as we love one another in Jesus' name. As we suffer, as we sacrifice for His mission. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As most of you know, I spent 
the first 19 to 20 years of my life in the same small Tennessee town, Lewisburg, Tennessee. It's about 50 miles south of Nashville. Uh, it was really the only place I knew growing up. I didn't really know the rest of the world existed. When you're from Lewisburg, you don't, you don't really travel much. Uh, you go on vacation maybe with your family once a year. Uh, but I, I, I rarely went anywhere, and that was really, Lewisburg was all I really knew. And that was until I was called in the ministry, and I went to Bible college in Birmingham, Alabama. And that's where I met my wife, and we served a church in Alabama for around seven, four, we stayed in Alabama for around seven years, serving a church there four of those seven years. And then we moved to Kentucky, and we've been here for about 15 years now. And every Thanksgiving, we go back to Lewisburg. We go back to see my family there. And one of the things I like to do when I'm uh, back home is just drive around and, and see how things have changed and, and, and think and, and thank God for what He's done in my life and, and just remembering that time in my life and how God shaped me and then how so much has changed since then. As I said, this is a small town south of Nashville, so it is, it is growing really fast right now. And every time we go back, there's something new, there's something different. And as I drive around, I rarely, I barely notice the place. There are, there are roads where you would merge on the highways that are, are no longer there, and there's new places to get on roads, and I'm all confused. I'm, I'm turning off into fields sometime because there used to be a road there to get here, and it, I barely recognize the place at times. There's new stores, new homes, new streets, new schools. And it dawned on me this week that I have now spent more time away from Lewisburg than I lived there. Lived there 19 years, and I've been away from there, I always forget how old I am, but 22 years, I think. I'm 41, is that right? 42? No, 41. Uh, I, I've spent 22 years away from that small town, so I've spent more time away from Lewisburg than, they, than I did there. And, and I've spent more time with my wife than even my, my family and friends that I grew up with. And I, I've spent more time with my kids probably than with the folks that I grew up with. Uh, we, we've been in ministry longer than I was there as a child, as a teenager, uh, as an adult. We, we've spent more time doing this than I did growing up there. And, and it just dawned on me that so much is different and how almost so far away that time in my life is. That small town that's changed, and I have changed. My life is really totally different and almost unrecognizable to when I was there. And this is the way the Bible describes the kingdom of Christ coming into the world. You see, before Jesus, the world is held sway by the old age. Sin and death rule and reign and Jesus comes and there's a point in human history where the old age is invaded by a new age coming. And this new age makes everything different. And Jesus displays the power of this future age that's coming to rule and reign. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He, he, he speaks 
and forces of darkness obey Him. He speaks and the created order does what He wants. He speaks and and sickness and disease leave bodies. And, And He displays this new age that's coming where He will rule and reign. He will destroy Satan and the forces of darkness. The creation created order will will submit to his authority no more natural disasters no more sickness and disease and he ultimately displays the power of this new age that is coming this new time that is coming by dying for our sins on the cross and being raised up The, the, the cross and resurrection are the doorway into this new age and as Christians you begin to live according to this new time, this new life. You begin to see the present. You begin to see the old age in light of the new. And the more you walk with Jesus according to the new age, the new power, the new kingdom, you begin to look around at the present and it becomes unrecognizable to you. It becomes different. And you look into the mirror And that person you once knew who walked according to the old age of sin and death, you hardly even know that person and that life. And that's what Peter is describing here in this letter to these suffering Christians. And he's encouraging them as you suffer and as you endure sin, your own sin and the sins of others, I want to remind you, you are a part of a new age, a new hope that has invaded the world in Jesus Christ. And there is a day coming where you will look back and you will not even recognize what you see. It will be totally transformed. And he tells us, beginning in verse 1, to live thinking that way. Notice verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered. He ties everything in uh, to what we talked about last week where Jesus has died for sin. He's been raised up as ruler and king over the forces of darkness, over sin and death. And he says, Jesus accomplished that in flesh and blood. And I want you to notice to arm yourself. This is... This is a war that you're in. You've got to remember that you're in battle with sin and death. You're you're waging war against the forces of darkness. And you've got to arm yourself, understanding that Jesus has already defeated sin and death and the forces of darkness. Arm yourself with the same sort of thinking. And he says here, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, he's not promising that we, when we become Christians, all of a sudden stop sinning. What he is explaining to to us is what we talked about last week, that Jesus has already paid the penalty for your sin, that Jesus has already defeated your sin. And when you believe in Jesus by faith, you are seated with him above sin and death. You've already understood and experienced the victory over sin in your life. We talked about this a few weeks ago. When God saves us, the Spirit of God comes into our life, the new kingdom is in our life, we are really free from sin. Although we live in a world polluted by sin, we're like what we talked about, that dog with that invisible fence and the power of sin has been turned off, but so often we don't think we can, we can run out. We don't think we're free. And what Peter is saying is, no, you're free from sin and death. And you've got to retrain your heart and mind to believe that, that Jesus has already defeated sin and death for you. So live in the world that way. And notice what he says, verse 
too. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, you have been freed from the sin of the flesh, the penalty of sin in the flesh, and so live no longer for human passions, no longer for the lust of sin, but for the will of God. And he says, I want you to remember you are free to do that. You are no longer in bondage. By, you have the Spirit of God that is making you new. You have to retrain your heart and mind to know you don't have to sin. But you can obey the will of God in Christ. And notice verse 3. For the time that is past suffices. It means that it was sufficient for doing what the Gentiles do. Now he uses the term Gentiles throughout the Bible. It's used of those who don't have the law, just the heathen pagans who do whatever they want to do. It's a term that was used to the Jewish Christians to help them understand what the rest of the world is like without the law. They just do whatever they want. There's no restraints. And Peter says, time up until this point, this new age that is invaded, up until that point, there was a time that was literally the word means overflowing with sin. It was sufficient. It had reached the brim. It was, it, it, was, it was to the point where God had had enough of it, where sin and death were spiraling out of control, and, and the time to sin, God had had enough. It was sufficient. Notice, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He uses all of these terms to describe what it means to just be, just be swept away in your lust, just be swept away in your passions, to be controlled by the desires, sexual desires, to be intoxicated with, with, with celebration. And he describes all of that to say immorality, intoxication, it is the apex of sinful desires. And he says the time before Christ was a time where these unhinged pleasures were just celebrated. And he sums it all up here with lawless idolatry. Sin was an act of worship before Jesus came with the new age. That, that, that's how you lived you know what it's like to be carried away by your passions and your desires. You see, in the Greek culture here, immorality and intoxication, they were acts of worship. They, they had emperors who were symbols of power and lust. And they would take part in, in these parties where they would celebrate powers and lust. And you would just give away to your desires whatever you want it to do. Having... Sex with a prostitute at a pagan temple was an act of worship in this culture. And so he says, I want you to look out at the world and I want you to realize sin and death spiraling out of control, it has reached its sufficient point. And now something new has broken in. As Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time. You see, the Greek culture wasn't the first to glamorize I got a little drunk last night and I don't even know her name. We think about our culture and this is where we live, where these things are glamorized. We think about how we sell things, how things are promoted, how things are advertised in our culture. It's according to the old age. It appeals to our sinful desires, the celebration of unhinged pleasure. The, 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 the ethic of the old age is let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's live it up. 
He says, no, you are living according to something else. That time was sufficient. That time is over. And notice verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised. The, the pagan world without Christ. They are scandalized. We talked about last week. As you live in holiness, they are convicted. And they are shamed by the way that you live. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now he uses this, this being carried away by your desires. Being controlled by your desires. Notice the way he describes it. This flood of debauchery. This flood of sinful desires. This flood of carousing. This flood of lust. And he describes it in the terms of what we talked about last week. The flood. Where you are washed away. And there is a form of judgment in the world where God just lets you over to your sinful desires. And he says, as you look at the pagan world and they're just carried away by, by these desires of the flesh, realize that's a sign of judgment. That's a sign of God's judgment. As you look at the culture and you think, how can we get a control of this and make it better? It's just getting out of control. That is a sign of God's judgment that it would be washed away in sinful desires. And he says, it's not so with you. You have been redeemed by this new age. And so what does the old age do? It rises up in judgment against you. Notice, they are surprised, they are shocked, and so they malign you. They twist and, and distort your reputation. Remember, we've talked about this throughout 1 Peter, that, that Christians are being blamed for a fire in Rome. They're being accused of trying to burn Rome down. And so many Christians are being set on fire. That, that was slander. That wasn't true. But what invoked that? Christians living under the lordship of Christ. And so the emperor was furious. I'm lord. I'm king. And so their reputations are maligned in a culture that is being carried away through sinful desires. God lets them go to the point that they turn around and look at you and say, you're wrong. The, the, the pagan world will judge you for living a holy life. We, we see this so often when we think about atheism. A lot of times we think about atheism as this, you know, superior, intellectual um, understanding of the world. Atheism isn't superior it's a more sophisticated form of rebellion. You know why the professor mocks Christianity? is because he understands the desires of his heart. And he wants to do what he wants to do. And if he says there is a God, he has to obey that God. He has to submit to that God. And so what does he do? According to his desires, he turns and he mocks and he judges the truth of Christianity. Why? He wants to do what he wants to do. And so often in the world, the, the pagan world will turn to Christians and judge them because it eases their conscience. That roommate coming in from the kegger this morning. Maybe not Kegger last night. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Maybe, maybe you got a really bad roommate. You need to find a new roommate if that happened this weekend, maybe. Maybe find a new roommate anyway if that ever happened. But, but that unbelieving friend who is living it up, 
who, who's doing whatever they want to do, who, who YOLO, you only live once, he turns to you and says, you're wrong for not participating. You're wasting your life. He rises up in judgment against you. That, that family member, we have this happen a lot around here. Uh, young couples who, who love Jesus and they love the church and they begin to order their lives in light of the gospel. Many, uh, many college students around here, they want to go around the world with the gospel. And, and, and they go back home, even at times like Thanksgiving, and they begin to tell their parents, you know what we're going to do with our lives? We're going to go live in an unreached people group for the sake of the gospel. And, and grandma and aunts and uncles, no! No, you're going to take my precious babies away? That's just wrong. You, you're, that's just wrong. Have you heard? That's just, you can't do that. That's not right. And, and what are they searching for? They're searching for something that will ease their conscience because they see the new age dawning in their family and it scares them. You can't take my grandbabies away. I deserve that. Think about all I did for you. And you're wrong in doing that. And there is the old age that is rising up in judgment as it sees the new age marching through. Many of us this, experience this in our jobs, in our careers. We, we, we don't separate our Christianity from what happens in the boardroom. And we try to make decisions in light of the gospel. Instead of pushing others down and climbing a corporate ladder, we serve others. And there are others who want that promotion. And so what do they do? They rise up and call you weak so that they get ahead. And so often it's the, the pagan in the mirror who looks at you and goes, you're wrong for suffering and sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. It's the one whose teeth you brush every morning who says, you deserve to be happy. And what is going on there? The old age is rising up and it's judging the new age dawning in your heart and your life. And you ease your conscience. You ease those convictions by declaring this can't be right. And Peter says that's going to happen in the world. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be distorted. But notice verse 5. They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and dead. Notice the picture of Jesus here. He is ready to make all things right. Notice ready to judge. Ready to evaluate. There is a reckoning. There is an accounting that is coming. As Christians, you are to give an answer for the hope that is in you. The unbeliever will give a defense... For the rebellion against Christ. And that day is coming. And Jesus here is on edge, ready to see it happen. Ready to judge the living and dead. Those who are alive and those who have died. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead. Even those who have already died. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, evaluated in the, the way people are. God will judge us according to the deeds in our flesh. That's how we will be evaluated, that they may live in the Spirit the way God does. What he says is all men will stand before God and give an account according to what they do in the flesh, what you do according to the deeds of your flesh. And what is it that will separate you on that day? Not your deeds in the flesh. Notice, that's why the gospel was preached. 
Because every man will stand before Jesus and give an account. Those who have died will stand before Him at His throne. Those who are alive will stand before Him at His throne. And we will hold up our deeds. And guess what? Our deeds will not be enough. Our deeds will damn us to hell. Therefore, the gospel was preached. From Hitler to Billy Graham to the meth addict to Mother Teresa to the Southern Baptist deacon to your neighbor, to you. You will stand before Jesus and He will evaluate your deeds and they will always be lacking. That's why today you're hearing the gospel because your only hope on that day is the gospel. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're not Jesus We don't have the authority to do whatever we want. And even if we did have the authority to do whatever we want, inwardly, we're not right. So we would do what's wrong according to our own desires. And that's called rebellion against God. And rebellion against an infinitely holy God is infinite rebellion and deserves infinite punishment. And you can't make that up with any goodness in and of yourself. You're not good enough. It will not happen. That's why you need the gospel. And this is so important as you look at the world around you. As you look at this flood of sinful desires. As you look at the world being swept away. Often we look at the world and we judge the world according to our own righteousness. That drug addict that you know from high school. Maybe you see them walking downtown Richmond. And you think, that's pathetic. I knew that was coming. I would never do that. That that scoundrel that you just heard left his wife and kids, and you think, I would never do that. That's just not me. I, I, I would never make that decision. Well, what the Bible says is, no, you have the tendency to make that decision at any moment. That's why the gospel was preached and discussed it by that friend that you see posting pictures with his new homosexual partner and you become disgusted. I would never do that. I was raised differently. And the Bible says, no, you have the same sinful tendencies. They just flesh themselves out maybe a little differently. And by the way, as repulsed as you are at the sinful world around you, your self-righteousness is just as repulsive to God. It's just as sinful. When you hold up your good deeds and you're better than other people to God, He's just as repulsed by that because it's not your deeds that save you. It's Jesus God wants to make much of Jesus. The life that Jesus lived in the flesh. The death that Jesus died in your place. That's what God values in His presence. And so you can lift nothing else up to Him. And you know what separates you from the world around you? Paul would write to the Corinthians and he would say, idolaters, those who are sexually perverse, those who are carried away by their sinful desires, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, yes and amen. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. 
You know what will separate you on the day of judgment? Not your deeds in the flesh. You will be judged according to your deeds in the flesh. It will be the gospel of Jesus Christ that separates you. You don't look at the world and think more of yourself. You look at the world and you think more of the gospel. You, you think, I've already been judged for my sin in Jesus on the cross. I already have his righteousness within me. And here is what, here's what Peter says. All of a sudden, when you begin to understand that, and you begin to understand that before God, in the gospel, you're different. You begin to live differently. And notice the things that we've already read that we begin to do in light of our acceptance before God, in light of the hope that we have, the new age that, that, that has saved us from the old age. Notice the things we do. He says the end of all things is at hand. This new age that's going to be summed up in Jesus, it's here in us. The new kingdom is in us when we believe the gospel. It's here. The end is here in us. And he says, so be self-controlled. Be harnessed. Your emotions, your desires, the way you think have to be controlled by the gospel. And that leads to being sober-minded. You're clear-headed. You see the temporary in light of the eternal and you make decisions in light of that. Will this last? Will this moment of pleasure last? Will this thing last? No, you're sober-minded. And notice verse 7, where this leads to. Prayers. All of these things, the kingdom, the hope of the kingdom, lead you to pray. You've tasted the new age in your heart, and so you begin to pray for the new age to come. This is what Jesus taught us to do. You pray, thy kingdom come. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. Why do you do that? Because you've already tasted the kingdom. And so you're constantly saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Notice verse 8. What do you do? You love. Above all, keep loving. The end is at hand, so what's most important? Love. Love is most important. Not serving yourself, serving others. Love one another earnestly. You're committed to it. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Notice there, there's so much here in this verse to describe love. First, keep loving. You don't walk away. It's earnest. It's an aggressive pursuit. You're fighting to love others. And then it, love covers sin. It endures sin. It endures sin. Love isn't love if you don't have to endure someone's sin. And notice it, said, it doesn't say ignore sin. It says cover, and the word is to endure it. You see it, and you meet it head on. That's what makes love love. Love's not easy. Love's hard. Love's difficult. And because of the hope of the kingdom, you're loving one another. Notice what else you do. You're showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. We've talked about this a lot around here. Hospitality isn't just having people over for dinner night, for game night. You know, just hosting people. It's welcoming the stranger as family. That's what biblical hospitality is. That's the picture of the kingdom. You were a stranger, an enemy to God, and He welcomed you into His family in Christ. He brings you once an enemy to the table. And that's what you do for others who you would consider your enemies. You bring them in, not just to your house, but to your life. What's mine is yours for the sake of the gospel. My life is yours. My, my house is yours. 
My time is yours. My energy, my money, it's yours because I want my gospel to be yours. That's what biblical hospitality is without grumbling. You're able to embrace these things with joy because of the kingdom. And notice verse 10, you serve. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. He refers to the fact that God has given every Christian in the context of the church, if you are a Christian and you believe the gospel by the Spirit of God, you have been graced with gifts to serve Jesus. Everyone. There's no one in the kingdom who doesn't have a way to serve the kingdom. And it's empowered by the Spirit. It's the grace of God. He is building this temple to declare His glory in the world. And everyone in it has a grace. And notice, varied grace. It's different gifts. And he describes here, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles by the authority of God, you're declaring the Word of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Here, the Word is being preached and there are those who serve the Word being preached. But together, it is the mission of Christ. Notice the verse continues, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God's goal for human history is that He would be glorified. He and He alone. That means lifted up, that He would have more weight than anything else that we know or that we have. That He would have the priority over everything. And how does He do it? Through Jesus. He, he sends His Son into the world to show His power and authority. He sends His Son into the world to gather a kingdom to Himself of people who will live for Him so that He might be glorified. Notice as the text continues... To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. What He is saying is in the context of the church, that's what you've been swept into. This plan to glorify God through Jesus Christ. And you have the presence of Jesus Christ in you that equips you and empowers you to serve that mission. We talked about this in Acts. You're a witness to the kingdom. That's why you exist. And so you flesh out that mission. But notice this, this new age living, it's all a radical other-centeredness. Did you notice that as we moved through there? It's all about other people. One another, one another, one another. The new age pries you from yourself to serve others. To give for others. You see, Christianity is not some fearful, grumpy, self-righteousness, miserable with everything and everyone. It is a joyful mission. Living in the world. Delighting in serving others. Because we have nothing to lose. We actually have nothing to gain. It's already been given to us in Christ. And so we serve. And so you want to know how you live according to the new age? Notice. You pray. You should constantly walk around saying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. If you watch the news, if you scroll through social media, there's plenty of reason to see things that cause you to say, come Lord Jesus. Make this right. Even as you deal with your own sin, you should constantly be saying, come Lord Jesus. You should, you should develop within you the desire for the kingdom more than the desire for anything else. In sorrow, in death, in tragedy, the echo of our prayer because we've already tasted the kingdom is come Lord Jesus. Even, even in our success. How, we normally are praying for Jesus to come when things aren't going good. 
Do you pray when things are going well, come Lord Jesus? You should. You should train yourself as you taste joy and satisfaction in this world that are real and that are good. There are things to celebrate. Your natural response is to say, but the kingdom is going to be even better. Come Lord Jesus. You gather with your family around the Thanksgiving meal. All the grandkids are there. Everybody's there. Everybody's happy. And you should say, oh, this is a, just a taste of what the kingdom is. So often we think the kingdom is going to be worse because we've latched our hearts to the temporary success and joys of this life. You should train yourself to say, no, something better is coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You should love. How do you live according to the new age you love? I want to encourage you to embrace the inconvenience others are to be in your life. You look around your life and you have a list of really inconvenient people that some of you wouldn't even utter their names. They may be sitting next to you. And you just say, this is inconvenient that I have to deal with these people. You know, God has put them there by design so that you would love them, so that you would commit to them. That love isn't easy. We've already said that. You commit despite sin. The best thing, the most sanctifying things in your life, the most sanctifying relationships you will enter in your life is when you have to make a promise to somebody and you can't go back on it. And God puts you in that situation where you have to love. You should teach your kids that. We like to say, I'm not going to let my kids quit. It's more than that. We don't want them to be miserable when they show up for a baseball practice that they don't enjoy. No, you're going to be all in. You're going to serve. You're not just not going to quit. You're going to serve. Because that's what life's all about. There are going to be days in your marriage where you wake up and you don't want to be there, but you have to love because you made a commitment. There's going to be days in the context of church membership where you don't want to be there and you don't like those people. And you didn't like the song. You didn't like the way the tables were set up. You didn't like the way the microphone sounded. And you didn't like where we're having BFG. And you didn't like... You just have to commit and not leave. And that sanctifies you. That makes you more like Jesus. According to the new age you love. According to the new age we saw here, you are hospitable. And you fight the selfishness within you by hosting others, welcoming others into your life. Instead of just piling things up for me, this is about me, and we just pile it up and we hole away in some cave where, where we push everybody else and we say, I have mine, me, me, me. What the hope of the new age does is, no, you throw the doors open. Come on in. I want you to know Jesus, so come on in. And we, we don't treat our homes as this fortress to hide away in. We, we, we treat our homes as a weapon Come in, I want you to know about Jesus. Those of us who like to complain about the sinful world around us, the sinners you complain about probably aren't coming here on Sunday morning. They're probably not. Those who are committed to a lifestyle you would not want your kids to participate in, they're not just showing up here because they saw our ad in the paper, because they drove by and saw Ashland. They're not just going, yes, I want to go there on Sunday. And you're thinking, how are we going to host those people in your mind that you're thinking about? Whatever category that is. They're not going to come here, but guess what? If you're really committed to the gospel, they will come into your house. 
Oh, that's where Christianity gets real. That's what makes a difference. Hosting those who we would consider strangers, aliens, unlike anything I would ever want to associate with. Come on in, because I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know the gospel. And some of you are saying, how can we do that? Because we've already tasted a day when that's what it will be like in heaven. You were a stranger, and Jesus has cut, says, come on into the banquet feast. Come on, come on into the wedding feast. Come on in and sit at my table forever. And so we host, we welcome, we're hospitable, and we also serve this mission of making Jesus great. You know, some of us are discontented with our life right now because we're treating everything that we do as an end. So, I'm in school, I'm getting this degree, and that's an end. That, that, that's just, I'm supposed to find happy in the end, the tool. And we're holding up the tool that, that, that's headed somewhere else. We're, we're, we're holding up the stage in life that's supposed to be headed somewhere else. And, and we're trying to find contentment here, and we're not content. And you know why? We don't see that stage in life. We don't see that time in our career our time and our path to an end to be leveraged for the sake of the kingdom. The kingdom is the end. The kingdom is the mission in your life. And if you view anything else as the end, other than a tool to make Jesus known, it's going to make you miserable. It's not going to satisfy you. That job will not satisfy you unless you see it in light of the kingdom. That, that, that relationship will not satisfy you unless you see it as an end to make Jesus known. It will not. It, it, it will not make you happy because you have been created to make much of Jesus, to declare His glory, to use everything He has given to you for His mission. That's what the new age does to us. And the more you are praying for, for the kingdom to come because you've tasted that age in your heart, the more you are Loving others, freeing, freeing yourself from you. The more you're throwing the doors open and saying, come on, come on in. The more you're serving this mission to make Jesus known. Sometimes you get in your car and you drive around and you think, where am I? This isn't the way it used to be. And maybe you glance up in the rearview mirror and you see that person who's been living according to the power of the kingdom. And you're so far away from who that person used to be. Because there is a day coming. You are tasting something eternal when that happens in your life. Because there is a day coming where Jesus will plant his foot in the world and everything will be made new. And we will look around and we won't even recognize it. Let's pray.